If you enjoy the Tudor Chess podcast, perhaps you would like to become an official patron of the channel and sign up to the Tudor Chess Patreon account. For just £5 a month, you can access all of my additional weekly subscriber episodes and coming soon, a brand new series produced by the Tudor Chess called Historian Unwrapped, which will be a bi-weekly conversation with a different historian about their lives as a historian, how they started out, their opinions, things that they would love to go back and change, etc. Season 1 starts in February and will feature Sarah Griswood, Sandra Fasoli and Owen Emerson, to name just a few. With the dynasty as famous as the Tudors, it's natural that myths, conjecture and salacious gossip has become as much a part of the story of the Tudors as the truth itself. Despite only ruling England for just over a century, the Tudors are unquestionably the most famous royal dynasty in all of British history, and it's easy to see why. This was, after all, the dynasty which spawned a king who married six times, only to behead two of those wives, of a teenage girl who out of nowhere ruled England for nine days. Or did she? and of two half-sisters who defied convention and managed to actually go through the process of not only getting the crown on their head, but then actually running the country just as well, if not better, than their male counterparts had done for the past millennia. Among this motley crew of rampant kings, wily chief ministers, devoted queen consorts and battle-hardened queens regnant, emerged a dynasty that used every colour in the paint box they were unequivocally dramatic, and as such, theories, beliefs, straight-up lies have become canon, at least for large portions of the general public and in popular entertainment. I need only draw people's attention to the presence of not one, but two portraits of Anne Boleyn in the halls of Hogwarts Castle in the film series taken from J.K. Rowling's magnificent Harry Potter book series. And therein lies the rub. The Tudors, perhaps only rivalled by the modern royal family, the House of Windsor, are in many respects celebrities. If you ask someone in the street to name you a wife of King Henry VIII, they'd probably be able to name at least one, maybe two, and nine times out of ten, the one they would say would be Anne Boleyn. But if you were to ask them to name the wife of a Plantagenet king, a dynasty who reigned for 331 years, then I would wager that most would simply look back at you blankly. It is this that makes the Tudors stand out. What makes them historical A-list megastars is the inherent drama in their story. But when one boils it down, much of the drama, such as it is, is built upon myth and legends about the dynasty, which for good or for ill, continue to circulate into the modern day. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 21, Tudor Myths and Legends versus the Facts. So today's podcast is going to be a bit different. Rather than discussing one particular figure from Tudor England, or perhaps a castle or palace, I'm going to look at some of the biggest myths from across the entire dynasty, examine where they started, and provide answers, where possible, 
to refute them. I mentioned Anne Boleyn in the episode opener, and as the Tudor poster girl for all things myths and conspiracy, let's start with her. Although, knowing where to start is also a challenge, because there are so many myths about Anne Boleyn to unpick. But let's start with one of the ones that's more commonly discussed, her appearance. Anne Boleyn is a controversial figure, and like most controversial figures, her detractors would often resort to the lazy way out when attempting to defame her, and would go after the way that she looked. Ironically, however, the words of her supporters should also be treated with caution. When we picture Anne Boleyn, our ideas tend to fall into two equally inaccurate categories. To Anne's detractors, it benefited their narrative to paint her as monstrous and ugly. One of the most infamous and enduring descriptions of Anne Boleyn came from Catholic propagandist Nicholas Sander, who writing over a half a century after Anne's death, said the following of her. Anne Boleyn was rather tall of stature, with black hair and an oval face of sallow complexion, as if troubled by jaundice. She had a projecting tooth under the upper lip, and on her right hand, six fingers. There was a large wen on her chin, and therefore to hide its ugliness, she wore a high dress covering her throat. In this, she was followed by the ladies of the court, who also wore high dresses, having been before in the habit of leaving their necks and the upper portion of their person uncovered. Now, first and foremost, I need to stress again that this was written 50 years after Anne Boleyn's death. I should also stress that Nicholas Sander clearly was not talking about fashion from the 1530s, because if anyone has seen portraits of women from that time, there were very few high-collar dresses on show. Nicholas Sander never met Anne Boleyn, nor did he see her in the flesh. Let's also use our brains here. Such pronounced deformities, as described by Sander, would certainly have eliminated Anne as a lady-in-waiting, much less a candidate for Queen of England. Sander was probably inspired by the anonymous and clearly hostile account describing Anne's coronation, which attributed a disfiguring wart and a neck swelling resembling a goiter. It was in this same description that states that Anne wore a dress covered with tongues pierced with nails to show the treatment with those who spoke against her might expect, despite ample evidence which confirms that Anne's coronation gown was of gold and white. All of these aspects of Anne's supposedly monstrous appearance were sheer propaganda and done to suggest that Anne was of the devil. The Tudors believed that evil was seen on the body, and in creating an image of Anne in which she is ugly and carries features that we would typically associate with witchcraft, then it, by definition, suggested that she was in herself inherently evil. And yet despite the ludicrous nature of Sander's description, aspects of it remain central to what the general public imagine when they think of Anne Boleyn. The sixth finger in particular is rooted firmly in people's imaginations. It's certainly high on the list of things that I remember learning about first when I started studying the Tudors in school as a child. The flip side of this myth is actually at the other end of the spectrum, in which Anne is portrayed as a ravishing beauty, which is also inaccurate. This has been most overtly driven by the many depictions of Anne in film and television, in which she is played by an endless round of stunningly beautiful actresses, perhaps most notably from a beauty standpoint in Charlotte Rampling, Geneviève Bujold and Natalie Dormer. Now whilst we can say with some confidence that Anne Boleyn was not ugly or deformed, 
she was also not the absolute stunner that Hollywood portrays her to be. She was dark-haired and olive-skinned, she was petite and had famously very dark eyes. She was referred to as being reasonably good-looking. And although the many portraits of her are not contemporary, some may have been derived from lost originals and show exactly that, a woman who was good-looking. She wasn't ugly, but she also wasn't a stunner. What made Anne so remarkable was not her looks, it was her character. That is what drew Henry VIII so entirely towards her. Even her enemies were forced to admit that she was bold and fearless, and so the reality of these myths, that Anne was either butters, which is London speak for but ugly, or that she was drop-dead gorgeous, are both, I'm afraid to say, wrong. Another common myth about Anne Boleyn is that she was accused of witchcraft during her fall in May of 1536, and this is simply not true. The accusations against Anne were that she had committed adultery, incest, and conspired in the king's death. This latter accusation, the one that was high treason, and as such carried the death penalty. Exactly where the witchcraft myth starts is difficult to say. Henry VIII supposedly commented that he had been tricked into the marriage, but it's quite a leap to then claim that the king was starting the rumour, and that he believed her to be a witch. Either way, no mention of witchcraft is made in any of the trial records of Anne Boleyn. This has not stopped this particular myth finding its way into the public consciousness though, and as I referenced earlier, is used as something of an easter egg in film and television. One of the more well-known I mentioned earlier is the fact that Anne Boleyn's portrait hangs in the corridors of the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry in the Harry Potter film series. If you look closely though, there are actually two portraits of Anne, although she is not the only Tudor to grace the walls of the school, with portraits of Henry VII, Mary I, and Bess of Hardwick all on display, and also of King Charles I. Anne Boleyn's name also pops up a few times during the amazing Netflix series The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, in scenes in which the teenage witch invokes the spirit of former witches to guide her in spellcasting. Now whilst I enjoy these little touches, and I do, I think they're fun, they are complete myth. For as I say, there was never any formal accusation against Anne Boleyn of witchcraft, despite the fact that the Tudors themselves believed firmly in the possibility of witchcraft. To them it was a very real thing, whereas obviously now, by and large, we believe it to be, again, sheer myth. There are two other things about Anne Boleyn that I would like to touch on before moving on to other characters and myths from the period. The first is a pretty simple one, and it's the myth that she entered the Tower of London via the famous Traitor's Gate. Whilst it is true that Traitor's Gate was indeed the entry point for most traitors into the Tower of London, Anne Boleyn was not your average prisoner. She was, after all, the Queen of England, and Queens of England, even ones accused of high treason, were accorded some measure of deference. Instead of entering the dreaded fortress via the famous Traitor's Gate, she instead entered via the same door that she used on the eve of her coronation, the door at the Byward Tower. And actually, whilst I think of it, she did not enter a dungeon during her imprisonment in the tower either, but was instead held in the Queen's apartments where she had stayed before her coronation three years earlier. The last thing on Anne Boleyn that I wanted to mention also relates to King Henry VIII, and it's the common myth that they were both Protestants, which they absolutely were not. The only one of Henry VIII's wives who was genuinely a Protestant was his last, Catherine Parr, who we must keep in mind 
almost found herself in the Tower of London over her religious convictions, which again adds further weight to Anne Boleyn not being a Protestant because her religious convictions were not brought up in her trials. Unlike Catherine Parr, Anne Boleyn was not a Protestant, nor did she die as one. Anne Boleyn was a Catholic and she died in the Catholic faith. What is absolutely true is that she was a religious reformer. However, this was reform from within the Catholic Church and not the complete abandonment of it. Anne wanted the Bible to be read in English and she wanted outdated and corrupt church policies to be reviewed. What she did not want was the loss of the seven solemn rites, the belief in transubstantiation, the belief that salvation came via both faith and good works. All of these things were important to Anne Boleyn and show quite clearly that she never would have considered herself a Protestant. The same is most definitely true of Henry VIII. His break from the church in Rome was not a break from the practices of Catholicism, it was a break from Rome being the higher power above Henry himself. Henry VIII's church in England was Catholic in all but name, just a version carrying the king's name. The king famously executed overly ardent Protestants and overly ardent Catholics on the same day, because they both strayed too far from his version of what he saw as the true Catholic faith. Again, just one of his own interpretation. Another myth of Henry VIII's is that he had syphilis and that this is why his wives had trouble giving birth to live children. However, this is sheer myth. There is simply no evidence to support this. The king's many years of ill health enable us to have a lot of information about what was going on in his body over that time. Although, again, we do have to take some of it with a pinch of salt given the crude nature of Tudor medical understanding. But what can be seen points to the case definitely not being syphilis. And the simple fact of the matter is, Henry exhibited no signs of syphilis, which were well recognised at the time. The king's frenemy, Francis I of France, for example, famously did have syphilis. Nor was the king given the customary treatment for the disease, a course of mercury, which is also the origin behind the saying, a night with Venus, a lifetime with mercury. The ulcers on his legs are often cited as evidence for syphilis, but we now know that these were caused by a jousting injury that he had sustained and his doctor's decision to keep the ulcers open rather than closing them over. Additionally, none of Henry VIII's wives or mistresses showed any signs of being exposed to syphilis, nor did any of Henry VIII's surviving children show any signs of congenital syphilis either. One aspect of Henry VIII's life, which is by no means a myth, is his colossal weight gain in his later life, and the monumental impact that this placed on his quality of life, and crucially, his mood. By being unable to exercise as he once did, the king did grow very stout, and according to the records, he also grew quite smelly. It was commented on, for example, that his ulcerated legs could be smelt from three rooms away. These facts are perhaps ironic when we consider that it was around this time that Henry VIII himself was the originator of the next big common myth from Tudor England, and that's Anne of Cleves being the ugly wife. If you ask the vast majority of people to tell you something about Anne of Cleves, they'll instantly respond with, oh, the ugly one, the Flanders mare. So let's do some myth busting. Firstly, Henry VIII never referred to Anne of Cleves as a Flanders mare. That nickname came along centuries later and has zero basis in fact. He did however comment on her looks 
and suggested to Thomas Cromwell that both the looseness of her breast and the evil smells about her blocked him from being able to go through the act of consummating the marriage. However, as I mentioned a moment ago, there was only one person in this marriage who was by now smelly and overweight, and it definitely wasn't Anne of Cleves, who apart from being only 24 at the time of her marriage, was also brought up royal, and so would have had access to the very best fragrances, lotions, and, and clean clothes. What we always have to keep in mind with Anne of Cleves is that her relationship with Henry VIII got off to a really bad start. She failed to recognise him, which touched the king's pride, and to try and save face, the king took all of his own insecurities and placed them onto Anne. Hans Holbein was a master painter, and whilst it is believed that by painting her facing forward, it neatly concealed the fact that she did have quite a prominent nose, what can also be seen is that this is not an ugly woman. And I don't wish to be reductive here, but anyone who looks at portraits of Jane Seymour can be under no illusion that she was not a particularly attractive woman. And when we compare her against Anne of Cleves, it's the latter who is clearly better looking. The myth of the ugly wife was one that suited Henry VIII. It deflected away from his own fading looks, and yet remains one of the most enduring myths from the whole of Tudor England. Alas, it is just that, a myth. Catherine Howard, like her cousin Anne Boleyn, is another figure of controversy, although unlike her cousin, she was very likely guilty of the charges that were brought against her and led to her execution. There is, however, a myth about Catherine Howard's execution that I just have to shut down here and now. Catherine did not say, I die a queen, but would rather have died the wife of Culpepper on the executioner's scaffold. This is entirely fabricated and has been given greater credence by shows such as The Tudors, which reveled in the scandalous and frankly untrue. Although we do not have a word-by-word -word account of what Catherine said, like we do with Anne Boleyn, those who witnessed her death make zero mention of such an outrageous statement, instead insisting that both she and Lady Rochford, who died a few moments after Catherine, died well, making, and I quote, most goodly Christian ends. Another execution story that has a lot of myths surrounding it is that of Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury. According to the myth and legend of this great lady's execution, she refused to lay her head on the block, and after the bewildered executioner just decided to strike anyway, sending the axe into her shoulder, she jumped up, began running around the scaffold from where she had to be quite literally hacked to bits. Now, having written a book, about Margaret and the wider Pole family, I was determined to get to the bottom of this story and figure out whether there was any truth in it. And whilst I don't wish to destroy what is arguably a nuts story, I am pleased to report that, to the best of my knowledge and belief, that this was not how Margaret Pole's life ended, although her execution was nonetheless botched. Firstly, the contemporary accounts of Margaret's death make no mention of a scaffold. Instead, they state that she was taken from her chambers into a quiet corner of the tower where a low wooden block was placed simply on the floor. Margaret was then required to basically prostrate herself on the ground to await the swing of the axe. When it came, it did not sever her head in one go and several strikes were needed. But she did not run around attempting to evade the executioner, nor did she refuse to lay her head down. Margaret Pole was by this point 67 years old, which was elderly, if not ancient, by the standards of the time. 
She was also born of the highest birth and would have known exactly what was expected of her in this moment, even though it was so humiliating and devastating for her. A woman of her rank would never have behaved as the myth suggests. And the origins of exactly where the whole she ran around being hacked apart story sprang up is difficult to pin down. I am pleased to conclude, however, that it is total myth. On the subject of executions, and I will move on to other things, I promise, just one other thing. That glass memorial on Tower Green, commemorating the spot where Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard and the other highborn prisoners lost their lives, you know the one, the one you've taken pictures of and gone, wow, so this was the spot. Yeah, I'm sorry to say, it, it, it wasn't. Whilst we cannot say with certainty where all of the executions took place, by breaking down the detailed records of Anne Boleyn's execution, historians have been able to convincingly conclude that the scaffold set up for her death would have stood in front of what is now the entrance to the Waterloo block, aka the Crown Jewels. And so the next time you're visiting the tower and you're in the queue for the Crown Jewels, basically the point at which you enter the Crown Jewels, that bit where you queue up, that is where the scaffold was erected for Anne Boleyn's execution. She did not die on that little spot on Tower Green. Another, I wouldn't say myth, but misconception centres around Lady Jane Grey, aka the Nine Days Queen, and that there is the error or the misconception. For Lady Jane Grey was not the Queen for nine days, but was in fact Queen for 13 days. Under English law, there is never not a sovereign. As Edward VI nominated heir, the second he breathed his last, Jane became the Queen of England. If we consider the death of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the statement released by Buckingham Palace said, The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Now this tells you exactly how it works. It was exactly the same 500 years ago. The second a sovereign dies, their successor takes over. And so Lady Jane Grey was queen from the second that Edward VI died. And that was on the 6th of July and not the 10th of July. So where does the confusion come in? Well, it's a pretty easy one. Jane was proclaimed queen on the 10th of July, 1553. That was when the people of London were informed of their king's death and the accession of Queen Jane. And so it's this date which is repeatedly treated as the start of her reign which then ended on the 19th, hence Nine Days Queen. However, this is technically inaccurate, and a more accurate title would be the 13 Days Queen. On the subject of Lady Jane Grey, another myth about her is that she was this sort of shrinking violet, that she was very meek and shy, but actually the evidence suggests that she was quite a feisty little character. She was very dogmatic in her Protestant faith, and happily argued with, and frankly patronised, her elders if they did not conform to her interpretation of religion. She was a pawn for sure, moved across the chessboard by the Duke of Northumberland and her parents, but her character was stronger and more decisive than history has painted her. It is easy to understand why this myth about her character has crept in. She was, after all, a girl of just 16 at the time of her execution, and never once asked for the crown, but equally she accepted the role that she saw as being given to her by God, and may have proven to be a very efficient queen. Equally, and I think the same can definitely be said of Edward VI, she may have taken as firm a stance against Catholics as Mary I would do with Protestants. 
with regard to Edward VI, because he died so young and never really reigned in his own right, we tend to view him as a a young, sweet boy who was pushed around by his uncles before tragically dying as a teenager. Now, whilst his death at such a young age was indeed tragic, I think we can safely dispense with the belief that he was this sweet and innocent young man. Based on everything I've read, I think he would have grown up to be even more of a monster than his father eventually became, and would have taken the same approach that his half-sister Mary did in attempting to remove Catholicism from England. For example, he once ripped a live bird apart in anger, so I dread to think what would have happened had he grown into adulthood and began to rule fully independently. The final myth that I wanted to dispel will be a bit of a disappointment for a lot of people, but sadly one of the most famous lines that Elizabeth I supposedly said was not actually said by her. Elizabeth I's religious stance was definitely Protestant, but not as fervently as her brother, and she also took a more middle-of-the-road approach when it came to her people's faith. She was well aware that there were Catholics in England and was willing to tolerate them as long as they caused no trouble for her. Now, this attitude led to the line, I will not make windows into men's souls, being regularly attributed to Elizabeth, but in fact was more likely written by Sir Francis Walsingham or possibly Sir Francis Bacon. And whilst it's the sort of thing that we might expect Elizabeth to have said, for she was gifted when it came to speech writing and creating witty statements, alas, this was not one of hers. What I have covered here is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Tudor myths and legends. There are countless more, but the ones I ran through today are some of the ones that I see most repeatedly and wanted to clear up. I understand the appeal of some of these myths, and they definitely help to keep people interested in history, although some distort the truth so much that it does a disservice to the figures themselves. For example, I know that the Beefeaters at the Tower of London, when taking people on tours, will recount the story about Catherine Howard's line saying that she wanted to die the wife of Culpepper. And again, I see the appeal of this. It's dramatic and it's quite camp, but it's also a lie. It's told to make the Tudors seem more modern or more believable, but their story doesn't need to be embellished. It was dramatic enough as it is, and so I implore you, dear listeners, the next time you hear someone mention something I've covered in this episode and they say it to be the truth, shut them down, and if that doesn't work, send them my way. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chest podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Next week in my subscriber episode, I will be looking at the lives of the two men who practically ran England alongside Elizabeth I, Sir Francis Walsingham and Lord Burley. To access that, please sign up to my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest or sign up via Apple Podcasts. Thank you again and speak soon.